You, you, want, you want me to get my OPZ out and play some sick bass? Yeah, <laughs> some buttery biscuit bass, 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 bass. Welcome to Mavis. Welcome to Mavis. Shall we get started? Okay. Uh, what do we have for today? We don't have that much, to be fair. Uh, we spoke about how uh, there's some new Hobonichi notebooks, Jules. Yes. Yes, there there are. And we ordered some. We did. We did. <laughs> End of follow-up. No, there's more. There's more. It turns out that... I th- so they're actually in our post office or whatever. They, and they were there on Friday, but... Um, we don't have them yet. We don't have them. <laughs> we don't have. We tried. We tried. Uh, we went to the. Uh, we went to the Royal Mail. Uh, yes. Uh, sorting office, oh, and uh, just tried to blag it and say, "Oh, have you got our parcel? <laughs> <laughs> have you got our parcel?" But uh, they said no. They said no. Um, they said Parcel Force has it, and then they yeah. told us it was about four miles away. So. So uh, then you drove four miles. No, we got back to the office. We went back to the office. Oh, right. <laughs> we decided to wait until next week. Yeah, so hopefully uh, tomorrow. Week, uh, whenever whenever this is, when because time time with podcasts is weird. We've probably got true. it by the time you hear this. As of date of recording, I'm hoping that we will at least get the letter tomorrow. If not, have them delivered tomorrow. That'd be nice. Yes, and the reason for this is that every time we order anything from the Hobonichi website, we end up having to pay tax, which is very irritating. Mm-hmm. Just just make us pay it up front, and then and then it's that'd be problem. nice. That would be nice. Yeah, but then I don't know how that works because isn't doesn't the tax go to the UK and like the yen go to the Japan? Right. Well, let them sort it out. I don't want to sort it out. We could just put our deliveries th- through a middleman. To be fair, mm. and then they would take. The- I'll do it for you. <laughs> yeah, but then we'd still be waiting ages for it to arrive, wouldn't we? Yeah, and we'd pay much more. Yeah. And secondly, for follow up, Jules, you've had the OPZ now for about two weeks, I think. How's it going? Well, how's it? Yeah, probably is two weeks. Um, I am still uh, having uh, a lot of fun with it. I, a bit, I've actually been using it quite a bit, especially in the um, in the evenings. I'll tell you what, um, I'll, I'll go into a bit of detail about how much I've learned about it so far. But I'll tell you what, it's been really nice to have um, like, a, like a gadget or a thing or, you know, something to, to kind of... yeah. Uh, play with to be entertained by that doesn't have a screen um because you know how you know how normally like if you're messing around with something like that well if i'm messing around with something like that it's like a synthesizer on ios or you know or or you're, or you're playing something on, on your phone or, or uh, on the tv or something like that and there's no screen of course, of course, there's a load of LEDs, but um, mm. yeah, it's, it's quite pleasant to uh, to have some time away from a screen. And I know, you know, I write in my notebook and and the, I, I kind of count the Kindle as that. But this is different because it is still like an like an electronic um, interactive thing. But yeah, no, no screen. Um, but yeah, I've, so I've been uh, still learning how it works. So I haven't made any masterpieces on it uh, yet, uh, because of the way that um, because of the way the controls are laid out. There's a lot of things like modifier keys and like pressing shift does things, and you ha- you kind of have to learn what uh, certain color LEDs mean in terms of control controlling things, um, especially on like the um, uh, 
like the dials at the top um they, they, there's like four pages there's usually four pages for each track and you just kind of get used to what the colors mean as to what's going to happen when you actually change those dials mm-hmm. so um i've made lots of bleepy uh noises and drum beats that sound like drum beats but nothing um substantial but you know it's it has been uh extremely enjoyable to do um i also uh reset it to factory defaults once because um i wanted to try that out uh before i got too far into making things uh which is really easy to do and the thing one of the things i was quite impressed by is that in order to do backups you just uh you switch it to disk mode and you plug it into the computer and uh you drag the files to wherever you want them to be oh interesting and um and that's that's how you back up that's quite nice isn't it yeah so you just you just plug it in drag the files over put them onto wherever you want i've put some onto um onto onedrive and um and that's it and if you want to go back you just drag the the files back what format are they in uh it's, there's multiple kind of formats but basically they're like uh, there's a combination of like text files and things like that so it's like configuration it's not like it's not like mp3s right no exactly. no yeah and the, um but yeah i was I, I found that to be uh super interesting so like i say it's still those kind of things oh and one of the modes that i uh, am really kind of thankful that i've discovered is how to put it into a because the the device auto saves so as you go and you change something if you press record like it, it will be recording that onto the track um and it like is constantly saving as it goes i when going through the menus I, I worked out how to do a snapshot so you can take a snapshot any time and then kind of go back to it which is really really useful but also there's a, a way that you can put it into a no save mode and um you just do that by holding down two buttons so it's really really quick to do and then you can kind of like hand the device to someone else to have a play with and they can do whatever they want you know mess around with any number of the tracks make mm-hmm. it sound in a particular way change all the dials and then as soon as you turn the power off, it's just, it goes back to whatever the last save state was. So I was, it's those kind of things that I've been kind of focusing on, like the basics of, um, of how to operate it more so than, than trying to come up with any particular, you know, tune or, or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really been enjoying it so far. I, um, so th- there is a, an extra module that you can get for it, which lets you plug into um, various kind of um, other MIDI devices and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I did actually watch a uh, video on um, YouTube uh, uh, last night, actually, by a guy called Cuckoo, who's, and his videos for the, for the OPZ are really, really great. And uh, he showed how you can use just like essentially like a MIDI hub to plug into the USB port. So it's so it's got USB C, and they can mm-hmm. do MIDI over USB C. Um, and he showed a particular uh, little hub that means that you can put, have USB standard USB devices that are plugged into a normal USB hub, and then mm-hmm. you plug that USB hub into this new this MIDI hub that I've that I've seen that I've got my eyes on, uh, and then. Um, <laughs> And then that plugs in via USB-C into the OPZ. And that way you can have multiple devices uh, uh, plugged into it. Now, I have um, three uh, like Korg uh, control surfaces. So I've got the, the Nano Key, the Nano Control, and the, the other one. I can't remember the name. And um, those, those devices should work with a, um, 
with a USB hub connecting in by USB. Do you have a chaos pad? Uh, I don't have a chaos pad, but I have something. I've always wanted a chaos pad. Yeah, so I have um, I have one of the Korg controls that uh, that has like the Nano ones that has uh, like a touchpad, like a like a mouse pad that lets mm. you do that kind of thing. But it obviously it's not like visual in the same way. Um, but uh, so instead of getting the the OP Lab module that kind of goes inside the OPZ, I'm I'm tempted to get this this MIDI um, uh, hub. And then I can plug my existing devices um, like directly into the OPZ. So I, I might try that out and see. But um, yeah, still very much uh, early kind of exploring with it. But I'm I'm really pleased that I decided to go for the option of buying a piece of hardware rather than software. Mm. It's got a completely different feel, right? Yeah, just it's it's so different because you're just like, oh, I you know I've got some time. I'll just pick this up and I'll just turn it on and I'll start doing something on it. Whereas if I got like a synthesizer for the uh, for the iPhone, um, which I've, I have actually got some of the Korg ones in the past and tried them out, you know, Outlook is still just a swipe away. Uh, you know, all the other, all your messages, iMessage and everything is just there. And it's, it feels so temporary when you're playing with something like that in software. And, um, you know, having a piece of physical hardware is, it's a, it's a thing in its own right. And um, yeah, I've had a lot of fun with it. I like the look of it. It's such a nice looking thing. Yeah. From a, from a design point of view, um, it really is. It's, uh, I, I actually, uh, I showed it to my parents the other day. And they were surprised at the size because it's because it is so small for for what it is, mm-hmm. um, and it's really really kind of compact. And I think at first, when and, and I know this because I was confused. Like when you look at it at first, like you just see lots and lots of buttons and symbols, and it's hard to understand. But very quickly, you kind of realize that everything is kind of split out into zones. It has been incredibly well designed and and well thought out by the guys at uh, Teenage Engineering. Like they've done a fantastic job at designing this thing. And while it looks simple and it doesn't like the, the different kind of areas that you would uh, for the, for the controls aren't, they don't stand out. Like they're not being, they're, there's nothing obvious on the, on the, uh, like on the, the actual device to show that, well, these controls are for uh, transport and these are modifier keys. And these, these are, you know, um, you know, these, these particular tracks are audio tracks and these tracks are control tracks. It doesn't say that, but very quickly you learn that that's what they are and you just know where to go for these things. Um, so it's, they've, they've really, uh, they've really kind of nailed the, the simplicity of how it looks and, and how they've managed to, to keep it really basic with no screen and anything else. And, and the depth of how, how deep you can go into the customization and making it do things. I think it is a really, really well designed, um, really well designed device. So obviously, you have experience with like software in this, you know, in this kind of industry, I guess, this area. Mm. But I mean, even back then, or now with this new piece of hardware, how do you feel about coming to such a? Because it's obviously quite an advanced bit of kit. There's quite a lot to learn, quite a lot to kind of understand before you even get to the point where there's something. Uh, viewable how do you kind of feel about you know coming to something so large like that it's interesting it, um it remind it very much reminded me of the the kind of the days um 
like over a decade ago when I would play around with the software, with software that synthesizes and uh, of just kind of experimenting and trying things out and seeing, seeing what happens. Um, but there are a few kind of like, uh, there's a lot of crossover. So there's a, there's a few kind of common things that you, that I've learned before and I kind of learned again, but um, I don't know. I I feel like it's, um I feel like it's one, it's one where you need to hands on try stuff and see what happens. Yeah. It's very much um, exploration. And the, and the very first, as, uh, at first when I started using this, I just didn't even, I didn't even look at the, I mean, I looked at the the quick start guide, but I didn't really go through the manual and I didn't really want to go straight into using the software. I just wanted to see what would happen if I started pressing things. And it's only later that I've started to look through the manual that, you know, I've understood the basics and I've got a rough idea what's going on. You know, mm-hmm. I look in the manual and then I see, oh, that's how you do a copy and paste. Oh, that's how you uh, create a snapshot. Oh, that's how you do a backup. Um, and then it just kind of fills in those blanks. So it's like a mixture of hands-on trying to just try to do something and then and then looking at the um looking at the manual. It's yeah, it's really really good stuff. Speaking of uh hobbies, uh, Jules obviously you have your your new OPZ. Uh mine is typically fountain pens. Uh to which it's been a year now that I've had fountain pens for and and been using them quite a lot. But I have three new pens to talk about. Three. Yep, three uh since three. we last spoke about pens to go through they are all twisbies and i've got them currently sat in order of importance to me in front of me uh so we'll kind of chat through them um so the first one is an orange twisby eco which you may have seen if you're in the fountain pen world recently um i obviously really like twisby ecos they're quite uh they were my first pen i had a uh in fact i have two clear demonstrators and this is a kind of um, the same, but it has like an orange. Uh, so is, is this one actually new then? It is. It's a new model, but it's exactly the same apart from the color. Right. I didn't realize it. I thought. I thought they were. I thought they'd been around for a while. These colored ones, no? Yeah. So I mean, there's there's been variants, but the specific orange one hasn't been around. Is, yeah, right. it's fairly new. I mean, we haven't spoken about pens in a couple of months, really. But um, yeah. Uh, so it has a kind of translucent orange kind of bottom and top, and then it's still a clear barrel in the middle. Um, but yeah, I, I still recommend like if you're wanting to get into, uh, fountain pens and you know, you want to buy a bottle of ink as well, then a Swissby Eco is definitely the way to go. They are great. And I'm guessing you have an orange ink in this orange Twisby Eco. Yes. I have the, uh, Diamine Orange currently in it. Nothing too exciting. I think I have a Diamine Fireblaze one, but don't quote me on that, um, on, uh, my kind of ink uh, ink station uh, over across the other side of the room. I do you have an ink station now. Well, I have to. Yeah, I have, so you have so to do it somewhere as well. So I have to put them somewhere as well. But um, yeah, I currently have no. It's just a diamond ink right now. But I do want to get the Robert Oster and Brad Dowdy's um, Fire on Fire ink, which I still just haven't made an order for. I'm not even sure if they're in stock right now. But it's in, it's kind of in my OmniFocus inbox, just like, one day, order this thing and treat yourself. You know, it's a Twisby Eco, uh, solid pen, and extra fine as well. The next pen that I've got, which is second in importance to me, is a Twisby Diamond 580 ALR. Now, I've had one of these before, and I had the, is it, I think it was like Slate Grey or Gunmetal Grey or something like yes, that version. Was, yeah. I ended up returning it because 
it was causing some problems on to my river paper, which is my primary paper that I use with some skipping and things like that. That was the that was the nib, wasn't it? Yeah. So I I returned it and I got some other pens in, in you know, as as a replacement. Um and kind of went without it. But when I had it, and I think I spoke about it on this episode, uh, sorry, on this this podcast, um, I did really like it. It's, it's like a Twisby Eco, but it's, you know, it's got metal parts on it. It's metal um, inside instead of plastic. It's a bit more weighty. Uh, but this specific one is the purple one. So the metal inside is all purple. The cap is, you know, has purple bits on it as well. So it's still an extra fine. And I did also get some ink for it, which I'll put in the show notes. It's a sailor ink as well. I is I won't purple? pronounce the name. It is purple. Um, so it, yeah, it's a really nice pen. I am seeing those issues with the previous diamond that I had on this pen occasionally. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. But I'm kind of putting up with it because I know it's a really good pen. And if I use it on, for example, my rodeo paper, um, I see it more than I do into my river paper. But I now, think is that is it definitely the is it definitely the nib then or is it something else that's that's causing that? Is, do you think it's just the design of the diamond? Yeah, I think it, it's. Well, I've had two diamonds now with that same problem. As is it if it's a problem? And is it is it was is it um, too wet or something or is it too scratchy or? I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't say it's too wet because the problem is that sometimes if you write quickly, you'll go to draw. You know a part of a letter and it will not it'll skip basically right it'll be missing um so you might have to go over it now i think i write knowing this i write a bit more heavily with this than i do other pens which means my lines look thicker even though it's an extra fine but it means that i see it less often right this ink actually has a quite a nice blue that comes out of it when it dries like if you if you dab a bit on say a tissue for example the core will be purple, but the outside's got this really nice blue color. So you start to see some of that come out in the ink when I write with it. Yeah, really yeah. nice, really nice Twisby diamond in purple, which I basically couldn't resist because purple's like my favorite color. The last one, the last pen that I want to talk about is it's a Twisby Eco, <laughs> which this time is the turquoise Twisby Eco. Now I think you can still get these quite easily in. Uh, in an eco T, which is where it has quite like a triangular. Oh, it's the different um, grip, the grip section, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of like a safari, you know, a Lamy safari. Yeah, where it's kind of it's, it's shaped in a way that's supposed to be better for your, for your right. Fingers. Now, I don't like that. I like the the round barrel on the Twisby Ecos, and I now have a a Twisby Eco that's turquoise. That's not an eco T. And these are actually quite a rare, like now they're quite rare to get. They're quite hard to get hold of, at least in the UK. I'm not sure. Um, I ordered this from Taiwan directly right. uh, over eBay because one came available. Um, I tried to get hold of one of these for my girlfriend quite a while ago and couldn't. And then I was just like looking over eBay one day and managed to find one. Um, so I ordered it and it cost me, I think, £50. And usually an eco costs around 30 so it's a small. Is that including know. shipping and stuff? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Mm. And this this is uh, this is not like the orange, though, is it? No, it's it's a solid color instead of it being slightly translucent. Or... Yeah, yeah. So it's more it's opaque, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, um, 
It's a really nice color. I actually, so it's one of my girlfriend's favorite colors, and I really like it as well. So this pen, I technically co-own, right? Because I've made an agreement that we share it. Okay. So, and, I, what color? Uh, what color ink is in this one? This has the Kaveco Paradise Blue in it. Right. So it kind of matches. It's obviously it's a little bit darker, um, especially when you see it inside of the barrel. But when you write with it, it's a little bit lighter then. Any suggestions on a on an ink that would match would be would be great. Like an exact match would be solid, but you know, it's the closest we've got together so far. The reason yeah, the reason I hold this one higher than the diamond, even though the diamond's, you know, potentially could say a more expensive or even better pen because it's made of metal instead of plastic. Um I just feel like this one this one's like a harder one to get hold of. It's it's more cherished to me. It's a really nice yeah. colour. Um and uh, it made my girlfriend happy when I got it, so that's cool. But yeah, uh, they're my three new pens. Cool, cool. And I assume you've written in yeah, in your uh, Hobonichi with all three at this stage? Yeah, I have. I have. Um, it's quite a few times, actually. I've had them for obviously quite a little, quite a while. Um, so that, to the point that they've become a little bit more normal. Um, they're not just new pens, really. Yeah, I, I think I'm not, I'm, well, I'm not really sure what... What pen is next? I don't really have my eyes on anything. I think I've got enough pens for a little while, and which you know is kind of like saying I'm never drinking again. Um, <laughs> but we'll see. I don't really have my eyes on anything. I think the next kind of pen I would want. I was just discussing this with you guys earlier. Is definitely more expensive than I paid so far. Yeah, it's like having a guitar, right? It's like you've got lots of like nice guitars. They're not like budget guitars, but they're you know like epiphone style guitars and now what you're looking for is more like not that epiphones are you know a budget because you can get expensive epiphones but it's kind of like you want a fender strat customized you know yeah like going from like the the epiphone sg to like an actual gibson sg right yeah (laughs) oh what a difference that'll be yeah um (laughs) but yeah i think i mean i've paid i mean Quite a bit of the pen world is, especially like as an outsider, fountain pens. Like people talk about how expensive they can be, quite you know, quite a lot. And to me, in the fountain pen world, like the the amount I've spent is a smaller amount compared to like a you know twenty, I'll say ten percent, not even that, five percent pay. You know, of of on per pen, what you could pay Mm. is the max I've ever paid before. And I'm not saying that. Oh yeah. But, you know, you have to rise in money all the time because it's about the pen itself. But there's definitely pens that are way more expensive than than this one or the pens I have where I could think, you know, one day I want one of those because they're obviously a certain brand or, you know, have really good reviews and feedback. And they're also, you know, nice to write with or pretty. But I think when I'm spending that much money, I would have to kind of start going to at least couple of pen shows or something and try one out yeah, before yeah, doing have it. a look at them and see them. Yeah. yeah but you don't do that though when you when you're just getting into it i mean you you mentioned earlier that the twisby eco was like um was your first fountain pen it was um and you know that is exactly that's a really good choice and that's exactly why you go for something like that instead of going for you know a crazy custom yes design that's been made specifically for you and because you don't know what you want yet mm-hmm um and it's interesting that you still the 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 eco itself even though it was the the pen that you first started on yeah 
is still offering so much because you you use the twi- the uh, your ecos all the time. I do, and you know you're still still getting those um, the diff- you know the variants of them. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't it doesn't need to be that super high end at all. Yeah, it's yeah. Just like you know finding what you like. I mean, I have four of them now. Twisby Ecos, exactly. Yeah, two, two um, clear, and now the orange and the turquoise, right? Yep. Yeah. And I, I mean, you could, I, in my mind, you could make some kind of correlation to buying field notes and buying different ones every time or having a subscription to field notes because at the end of the day, most of them are the same notebooks in, you know, size and shape and stuff. But maybe yeah. some of them are different color or design or have different paper, etc. But, um, you know, everybody still buys a subscription for those typically uh, if they're into field notes and i guess like i've just found a really reliable pen that isn't actually you know it, it's not very expensive it's 30 pounds typically and they're just really really good like if i was if i i think mike uh, a friend of ours if he asked me the other day like oh you know should i try one or i think maybe it's tom or something but you know what should i get and i was saying well the Twisby Eco is definitely the pen I would get. Now, you do have to buy a bottle of ink with that. But if someone was, you know, wanting to try out fountain pens, I would happily give them one of my Ecos for a little bit and say, have a play with this because then they wouldn't have to buy ink, etc. Yeah. Or if they got one, I'm sure you would, uh, you would, um, lend them some ink. Deal them yeah. some ink. <laughs> yes. Under the table. Yes. Um, but I, I, I still really, really like the, the Ecos. Um, and the diamond, like I've said before, is a really nice kind of, more solid version of it yeah i really like the twisby logo on the diamonds i know it's a silly little thing but i really like the way it looks on the diamond compared to the um, eco not that the eco looks bad yeah but i i really like the way that it looks on the diamond interesting well we'll we'll have to wait and see Mm. um an update from uh from my side and uh i will give an update for jordan as well uh, I am still using the Jetstream Prime rotating delivery single, and uh, um, Jordan is still using the Apple Pencil. Mm. Pencils. Have you ever been hit by an electric car by accident? No. <laughs> no, but I have. Um, I did have a guy um, on when I was walking around the village. Um, a guy just reversed like into me while I was. I was walking around. Was he was he driving Jeez. an electric car though? He was. It was a um, hybrid. Yeah, it was a hybrid, and it was uh, and it was completely silent. But like, it was totally on him. Like, <laughs> with, I was just I was just walking down the street, and then he just he just suddenly started uh, reversing out of his driveway. No, it was a taxi. Basically, he oh, was he was just uh, sat on the road, and obviously the, the 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 vehicle was on. But yeah, he just suddenly started reversing, and uh, I, you know, I. Myself and my wife were actually walking behind the car at the time, going across the road. But he just didn't look. Mm. Now, if the if um, I well, we didn't actually hit us by the way. I just I hit his car. I, um, you know what you know what I mean. Like you just kind of tapped it to to be like, yeah. hey, by the way, there's someone walking here, and um, and he immediately stopped and said sorry. But the I didn't realize that this vehicle was on, right? Because it wasn't it wasn't making any noise. Yeah. So I've I've um. I guess maneuvered, not, I wouldn't say driven, but I've kind of moved around. Um, my girlfriend's dad, he has a, a hybrid BMW that basically, when it initially starts up, doesn't turn the actual engine on. It just turns the electrical engine on, basically. And so it's like driving a cloud. It's great. Um, but I do often think that it's so quiet. And my car sounds like a tractor. 
um, half the time because it's a diesel engine. Yeah. Well, the loudest thing on my car is, is actually the air conditioning. But, <laughs> and I usually have the air conditioning on. It's pretty loud, that stuff. Yeah. For some reason. Uh, it's also, it felt ridiculously light compared to my car. And we have both, you know, they're both like three series BMWs, right? And just one of them's a hybrid and one of them's a, a touring. But it, yeah, it was, it was really, really nice. But yeah, I couldn't hear anything apart from the, you know, light tire noise, really, which wasn't that much because I was going very slowly and reversing it around a driveway, basically. But no, I, I haven't, I haven't been hit by an electric car before. Well, the reason I say this is because. They are really quiet, aren't they? They are. They are really quiet. And I think, I remember reading a little while ago that people were saying that the government were considering having a legal requirement for these cars to have like a device on them that makes it sound like it's got an engine in it. And that way people know the cars come in. Well, it turns out that has, by the looks of it, from the European Union point of view, been uh, brought in. So from 2021 all electric cars that are traveling under 12 miles an hour will need to uh, have a sound. Yeah. I, I remember similar, but not exactly the same. Um, there was a whole thing about like electric cars or uh, certain cars pumping in sound of engines that were fake to make the car seem more exciting or whatever, like for, through the speakers. Like into the cabin, like into the car. Yeah, mm. um, which is kind of like not, obviously it's not the same thing because it's, it's for the person inside instead of the person outside, but um, it seems like a really strange concept to do it inside. Mm. I think, don't the BMWs do that? I'm sure like the BMW like M series do that. Let me, let me check this. I can imagine, I can, well, as we, as, uh, as you know, like when you, when you drive, like, um it's it's not just it's like a multi-sensory thing isn't it like when you for example if i know you guys have automatics but like when you're driving a manual you know when to change gear right because Mm -hmm. you have a feeling from from the car and that comes from multiple senses because you're you you feel the vibration of the car you have a sound that you hear um like obviously you could be looking at the dials as well but it's like there's there's multiple cues that are telling you to do something. Now with these electric cars, they don't have these they don't have gears anyway, but I wonder if it's something to do with that kind of feeling disconnected from it because you're not you're not um right. And I, when I say you not it doesn't have gears, I mean you're not manually changing gears, right? On these electric cars. So yeah. I wonder if it's I wonder if it is that kind of thing that is not providing enough feedback to the to the actual yeah. driver. I wonder if like having something like a no- some kind of noise would help. But whether it's <laughs> the fact that it, that they're saying that it should sound like an engine is is interesting because <laughs> it's it seems like that's you know like skeuomorphism, right? It's pretending yeah. to be something that it isn't. Yeah. But um, I I wonder if that's the the better choice. I don't know. Maybe they should play a song. Yeah, like imagine if if this machine that they put in these car electric cars was just bird sounds or as it was I mean, driving yeah maybe maybe vehicle i mean you, obviously you, yeah you get those things where it tells you that the vehicle's reversing or the or the kind of like the hissing sounds that you get um or just i am a car i am moving yeah i am a car i am moving but forward direction yeah and that way people know and i wonder if like <laughs> maybe a, a, a like a click sound or something like that might be better but i i don't know it's it's interesting but i think Having a sound is probably a good idea, but I I wonder as well if um because 
because you you kind of you kind of feel like the vibration of a car as well like yeah that like you can just tell that, that, that there's a car that's that's on with its engine through all these different through your senses and i think mm. like the fact that it's like that if it, it's like there's something moving inside of it you know like the engine yeah. is is moving inside this vehicle that you're standing next to and you can kind of tell mm. but there is none of that something that i've heard of before um i've heard people talk about the fact that electric cars especially the teslas now that they're getting kind of more autonomous is creating we spoke about last episode how you know, we're talking about uh, traveling being taxing, and I mentioned about driving, the fact that, you know, for potentially six plus hours or whatever, you have to be alert on everything. You have to try and look at the road, you know, listen for things, look in your mirrors, uh, and, you know, mind your speed and, and et cetera, and people around you. And apparently, like, I've heard people talk about the fact that as cars become more autonomous, you know, that alert is kind of taken away because you're just kind of driving this thing that, you know, even with even with cruise control, like, you're still having to brake and and deal with in steer. Whereas when you you know the car's taking care of potentially speed and then lane changing and also just keeping in the lanes and stuff, you are definitely less alert than you probably should be. Yeah. And therefore, and and then there's been stories obviously about people trying to sleep behind the wheel of a Tesla and stuff. But I think I think this is going to become more of a problem as as vehicles become more autonomous, just purely because. You know, this whole thing about how a machine can be potentially safer than, you know, as a person driving a car because it can be more aware and analyze all this data continually. But at the same time, right now, at least, there's people offering these services where the drivers think they can calm down a little and that may cause more accidents in the short term, which could yeah. end up being a legal thing because, you know, oh, autonomous cars are making people less aware and causing more crashes right now. And yeah. then they end up being banned. I mean, I mean, what about deaf people, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, d- d- we should just get everyone guide dogs. What? Just everyone? <laughs> yeah, more dogs. Be more dogs yeah. for everybody. More dogs for everyone. I mean, we'd probably have a problem with like dogs pooing on the ground. Well, and stuff, I mean, there'd be a lot more dogs. There are. I mean, there are a lot of more dogs in the world that need homes, so we can yeah. train them and give them up to people. But or or you know that that box they're going to put in the car. It could just scream. <laughs> make dog noises. Wait, what? Yeah, it could. It could just scream. Have you ever? Have you ever heard that dog who apparently says sausages? <laughs> Imagine if the dog was saying like vehicle reversing. But this, <laughs> no, this box. It could just scream. Get out the fucking way. <sighs> well, I don't think that would be. Um, I, Get I out think, the fucking way! I think people I will. Uh, choose with their wallets on that one and i just i don't feel like that's necessarily the vibe that a lot of people in their testers <laughs> should want to give off when they're driving around like to, to baller to coming through at 12 mile an hour <laughs> <laughs> but i think that's why i think that's why like the fact that it's kind of multi-sensory like there's movement like there's sound there's vibration when when you're in an like a, a normal car and you're right. I think if it, if you just literally replace that with just a sound, I don't know if it's um I don't know if it's going to be enough for everyone in our society to get that that there's a there's a vehicle moving around. I th- but I think this is something that we're just going to have to um we're just going to have to kind of get used used to over time. And and it may be it may seem funny that they can they're essentially adding like engine noises like in what was it mm. from twenty twenty one moving forward it'll probably be law so they're going to start doing it now it may seem weird that it's like an engine noise and it may seem 
stupid to us in a decade that that's what they chose to do but um at least it's something and it's and it'll probably be the most recognizable uh sound yeah i like i like the fact that we're trying to find a solution here and we're saying things like oh you should swear at children (laughs) yeah or have dogs everywhere (laughs) right foley filet is it foley or is it filet chick-fil-a oh man i want some chicken nuggets so jordan if you wanted to get some chicken nuggets and you wanted to get them in or from chick-fil-a you'd have to fly there right yeah but on like a massive plane (laughs) like we're in the uk like well i mean obviously why would you point out that it would have to be a massive plane because i can't fly a massive plane but what can you fly only small planes small planes so, Jules, you've got your synthesizer, which is your hobby at the moment. Andrew's got his pen hobby, yeah. which is going quite well. And I have recently taken up learning to fly small light aircraft, cool. which I've been doing for the last several weeks, a couple of months. Um, yeah. So actually, my girlfriend and I were learning together. And it's something we've always wanted to do, but we're like, oh, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. And then it kind of became apparent that we could just we might as well like a weekend's a thing so yeah since kind of may we've been we've been taking flying lessons we've got like it's it's a bit weird like it's something i've i, I won't originally believe it or not when i was like eight before being becoming wanting to become a mad scientist i really <laughs> wanted to become a pilot and my parents when i was about 12 or 13 they got me like a flying experience lesson thing where you that you know, in a, like a four-seater light aircraft, which which are like you know, like a Piper or a Cessna or whatever, uh, and I did that, and it was great, and uh, I did a couple of them over the over a couple of years, so it was good, and I was kind of plane obsessed for a while, so I, I had a bit of experience beforehand, but it's great, like it's just, it's just, it's crazy, really, like you, the, there's so much to it, like for instance, you've got to take quite a few exams to do it, and you've got to get like forty-five hours of like flight time under your belt. So I've done about four or five hours so far. And what what counts as flight time in that instance? So that's basically the time the engine is on, basically. So in, in these aircraft, they have like like timers, like like kind of like an odometer, but instead of an odometer for miles, it's an odometer for hours. Mm-hmm. There's, they've got a special name. I should probably know that. It's probably in the book somewhere. <laughs> and you... From turning on the engine to shutting it down, that's your what you would log in your logbook, really. Um, right. So it's not necessarily it's, it's what's you're in control of the vehicle, really. Um, it's not necessarily I, like in in the air. Mm. Well, it, well, no, yeah, sorry, I mean, you're in a vehicle yeah. that's being controlled because it's not necessarily yeah. you controlling it, right? Yeah. So to start with, you're flying under your instructor's license. So if you look at a logbook, like because you, you have to log all your flights, so I have like a proper like almost like a notebook, but it's like printed and it's like a proper CAA, like logbook type thing. You put in the type of aircraft that you flew and when and where, where from and where to and your, you know, your instructor, if you, you know, or co-pilot or whatever. Um, and then you put in how many hours flight time. Now, obviously you don't want to be sat on the runway like you're burning fuel, basically. Yeah. Where if you if you got the engine on, you're burning fuel. So you don't really you've got to do quite a few checks, but you want to be kind of up in the air as quickly as possible because you don't want to be you're literally burning money away if you're just mm-hmm. sat there. 
Um, so, but that's also, you've got to also remember like taxiing, practicing taxiing, which yeah. is crazy, by the way. Like I actually, like it's like, because you've got pedals that control the rudder um, and then on the ground it controls the nose wheel, which is like a bit crazy. So you're like, oh, you know, trying to turn the aircraft with the yoke, which is like the, you know, effectively the equivalent of a steering wheel and nothing happens. So you're like, oh my God. And obviously the wings are quite large. Like there's a large wingspan, so you don't want to like crash into anyone. So that's been, that's taken a while to get used to. Um, like, you know, just steering a vehicle with your feet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. Like, um, there's, it's all about like routine and checks, especially like, you know, when you first, there's so much, there's so much to it. And, and, you know, there's the physics of how you, you know, you're flying, like how, how, how do you, how does lift work? How does the plane actually fly? Um, and then there's like secondary and primary effects of like different controls. So, you know, pitch your role, that kind of stuff. And you've got to learn about all that kind of stuff in the basics, which is kind of what we're doing at the moment. But in the meantime, you've got to like, you know, learn the radio, how to use the radio. So you've got to get a radio license, which is like an exam that you do. Wait, you need a rate? Do you need a license just to use the the radio? Yeah, you have to be certified to use the uh, radio. Like, well, you need a you need to take the exam basically. All right. So um, you practice, obviously. But if you mm-hmm. if I was if I was on my own and I wanted to like fly, you know, under my own license in different airspace i would need to be licensed it's a legal requirement really um, yeah. so obviously you can you can do it without license while you're, you're training um but i think like you know I, I, there's a whole air law book i'm reading at the moment about um different standards and um because it's interesting like there's you know after world war Two, there was a lot done to kind of make flight like international flight standardized which has been really interesting, mm-hmm. um, but but yeah, it's 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 interesting to to see like now when you know when you're like on a runway taking off, you mm-hmm. know, on a holiday and like a normal commercial flight, and there's all these like lines and things on the runway that you see yeah. like yellow lines and white lines, and that's obviously important from a where you're going. But there's a load of laws around like what the dashed lines mean, like kind of give way lines effectively. Right, um, and you have to know all that. And you have well, so to if you're following a certain path, you have to follow certain rules, and that's yeah. And part so of like, that's what's documented on the on the ground, basically. Yeah. So, like for instance, um, there's like loads of signals and signs and stuff that you have to pay attention to. So, for instance, if you come up to some like dash lines, almost like a giveaway line, there's, there's usually like some dash lines and like a solid line. Well, depending on what type of line it is, you have to stop there and then wait for air traffic control's permission to. You have to request permission to cross the line effectively. Hmm. Um, but it depends on what airport there is. And there's all sorts, of, all sorts of different classes of airspace as well. So like class, you know, A, B, C, D kind of airspace. And all of these things mean different different things. Because like as a, as a pilot, you, you start training what's called VFR, which is visual flight rules, which is what I'm training to do right now. And that basically means that I'm flying visually. Like I'm not, I'm not really using the instruments. I mean, you do use your instruments, but you're, you're not, you, your, your primary training is on what you can see visual. Yeah. So the horizon, what you can see in terms of the angle of, you know, when you're banking and like, you've got to get a feel for, you know, different turn rates, banking, all that kind of stuff, which is fantastic. But it means you can fly during the day only and. 
And not when it's cloudy and exactly you can't fly in what are called like IMC conditions, which are like um, instrument meteorological conditions, which basically means because what's really crazy is that it's not just safety, but also like you don't want to like for yourself and like the physics of it. But it, obviously, you know, you don't want to crash into any of the planes. Yes. If you can't see any of the planes. Yeah. And, and, and as, as, as crazy as that sounds, you know, that can happen, obviously. Yeah. Um, so what happens is you you would fly under what, are, like, you would fly IFR, which is instrument flight rules. But if you're flying instrument flight rules, um, you have to make sure you've got IFR clearance from the air traffic control. You've got to kind of file flight plans and all sorts of stuff. I mean, you don't have to all the time. There are exceptions, like, say, you go into IMC conditions and you need to request, you know, an IFR path from air traffic control. And what they'll do is continually, continuously guide you and you'll cross different airspaces, for instance, and every radio, like every, diff, like if you look at a map of airspace, like Manchester and Leeds Bradford around here have different airspaces, Sheffield, Hull, you cross different airspaces and you say, you know, hi, you know, Manchester, I'm, I'm crossing your airspace. Please give me an eye. You're kind of like never, you're never really flying alone, are you? Like you're always in contact with other people. Um, if you're flying IFR, yeah. If you're flying VFR, then you don't really have to do anything unless there's airspace rules or you know different class yes. of airspace require you to say, hi, I'm, you know, I'm going this way, you know, out like a basic service where you basically tell me nothing, <laughs> which is kind of scary. Whilst you're kind of in this, this VFR training um, time of yeah. this period of time, do you have any, like, is there any, like, seasonality requirements? Like, you can't do it over, a, you can only do it, like, between certain months or whatever? Like, not not certain months. Um, there are conditions, like, obviously, if it's really windy, yeah. you, you know, you have to make, you have to make a judgment call, really. Like, it's not, it's not about there's a legal requirement for the wind exactly mm-hmm. i mean there, it's all about safety and looking at like things like we we look at things like metars which are the meteorological kind of um it's like weather data basically um that are broadcast every like half an hour or an hour or every couple hours based right. on where you are and then there's tafs which are like airfield information so you so for instance it was really windy uh, a few weeks ago in the morning and I was meant to be flying about six o'clock and I was looking at the wind speed. And it was like 30 knots or something ridiculous, which is quite a lot, which is really, really like what 40 do you usually fly in? Um, like six to eight, 16, six, six to 18 knots, maybe. Okay. But it, that's bumpy when it gets kind of 12 to 18 knots. It can be a bit bumpy. And okay. but remember, like if you fly higher, you can fly higher than some of the thermals and all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff. So um, it's fine. But anything kind of over 20, I would say. Or even around that area, like it's it's kind of it's not safe. It can in that kind of plane, and depending on who you're with, it might not necessarily be safe. But also, you you can't really do a lot of training if you're just getting blasted around. Say you're trying to do like yeah. straight and level flying to you know practice trimming or something like keeping the plane straight and level. If you're getting, you don't want to do that when it's windy because you're just never going to be able to do it because you're getting blown around. So it's mm. kind of a bit like, eh. but. The IFR stuff is going to be cool. Like I'm looking forward to doing like instrument ratings because you know it. That's the kind of stuff you have to do. You know when you you're flying across different like airspaces and and for instance, like you know if the weather does get bad, you want to know that you can you can navigate yourself mm-hmm. out of that situation because you know there's been some terrible accidents where people have gone. Oh, it's fine. It's not too. It's not too bad 
and then uh, you know within 10 minutes they're literally in cloud and they can't see anything vfr is you can fly 30 minutes before sunrise to 30 minutes after sunset basically which is like how oh, bright right. it is um that's kind of the rules so well sunset half- so that's it's really bright here at the moment yeah those times anyway so you've got half an hour to basically get down i mean obviously no one's gonna no one's already gonna know if you didn't but you don't want to be flying in night conditions. yeah it's, it's also for your safety as well it's not just like oh these are the yeah, rules absolutely um and obviously depending on how windy it is and you'll make a judgment call like you know one of my instructors was saying that what's your limit like it's all about your limit not someone else's limit mm-hmm. my drinking yeah exactly and some people might be comfortable flying in 18 knots, you know, taking off with 18 knots worth of crosswind, but other people might not might not be. So it's all about, like, you know, that kind of stuff. So so right now, what are your kind of milestones that you have in mind? Like, obviously, the long term, but in, in the maybe short to midterm, what are the kind of milestones that you're working towards? So I, I want to do my PPL, which is private pilot's license. So you need 45 hours uh, or roughly 45 hours worth of flight, like, hours under your belt but then you have to do 12 exams right. as well and you could do them at kind of at different points and then there's some skills tests as well so so that's that's flight time and then studying for the actual exams yeah so for instance like I, the first exam i need to take which will be soon uh, will be the air law exam because you have to get a certain number of solo flying hours under your belt as well i think it's right. 10 10 solo hours where you're just in the plane on your own mm-hmm and to be able to fly solo, you need to do your air law exam first. You can't fly solo without doing air law. Um, so I need to do that. Um, and then, so I'm, I'm probably going to do that between now and the end of August, maybe. It depends. Um, depends on where I get to with the flying. I'm not I'm not in a rush. That's the other thing. It's a hobby. It's yeah. not like, you know, some, some, some people fly because they ha- commercial pilots have to go through this whole thing anyway. Yes. So they would want to do that as quickly as possible. But I'm, I'm fine just getting good at it you know like if it takes me 100 hours then that's fine well it, the hobby does it not... expire after a certain amount of time like uh you know the, the hours that you you have now like safe because no. you know if you leave it for a while would it with that i don't think so no it's um but but you do have to do tests every couple of years i think like like um you know like a, a skills test with an examiner every couple of years to make sure that you're fit to fly otherwise you lose your license or or i i think but for instance, because you've got a man- to do a mandatory, let's say, 45 hours, say I I decided to come back to flying, uh, say I took a break, decided to come back to flying, and I had 45 hours under my belt, I could just go and, I, th- I think I could just go and do my skills test again to make sure I've, I'm mm-hmm. fit, but you wouldn't want to do that because if you're two years out of currency with the aircraft you're flying, yeah. then you... Again, it's it's for you, you might fail. For other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Be- so... um you know, the, the instructor I was with the other day he has 11,000 hours worth of flight time under his belt. Wow. So, um, and that's with the RAF and all sorts of stuff. So, um, you know, he's he's pretty good. Um, but I fly with a few different instructors, really, because some people like to maintain, like, one instructor. Um, I'm, I'm with Georgia, you know, not too bothered about that because we're doing it for fun. Mm-hmm. And... The other thing is because you know VFR flight, you only get several hours a day of, of light in kind of you know some of the winter months. They do some nighttime flying as well, like practice. But a lot of the instructors get booked up pretty quickly, so like they're booked up two yeah. or three months. So if you're ahead, precious so, about it, then you won't yeah, get the opportunities to fly. Yeah, which yeah. is kind of the point. Um, but going back to the whole instrument rating stuff, like 
I didn't realize that, and because obviously there's this whole physics element. So I was up in the plane a couple of weeks ago, and Georgia sits in the back, and I sit in the back when she's flying. So we kind of get the same lesson over and over again, and we can listen in. So we actually get, yeah. we're actually getting like more for the experience because we're kind of getting to experience the same lesson, but from a listening versus doing, which is really good because I find it helps a lot. But I, 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 I was turning right. If you turn the plane and bank, say, I don't know, to, just, you know, turn left for instance. It's not like a steering wheel in a car, right? Where if you're turning, you know, you're turning the the wheel and then you straighten it up and then you're going straight again. If I were to bank and then leave the yoke straight, I could still be banking. I could still be turning. I could literally be flying in a circle and not know. Because if you're flying in cloud, you don't know your bearings. Mm. Like forget the instruments. Like you, you would use the instruments to work that out, but you could easily get into this, into a, into a dive almost. And if you did, you know, VFR in cloud, you could easily end up just crashing into the ground and not realize that you're descending unless, you know, you use your instruments, but right. You know, it's, it's a, it's a really weird thing. Cause you know, you, you think you would feel the physics, you know, from a physics point of view, you would feel like you were turning, mm. but actually you don't feel like that. And, and actually that's the kind of hardest bit I've, I find about flying at the moment is the whole making sure you know you know where the horizon is and l- keeping that datum they call it a datum which is like a you focus on a certain point and you make sure that you are always you have that picture in the effect of your windscreen and you, you maintain that picture i find that quite difficult sometimes because everything's moving so but i'm looking forward to it like i've been really enjoying it um i'm watching a lot of youtube videos as well at the moment like of different pilots like flying just because it's really fun to watch people fly down like the florida keys and flying things like turboprops do you think that getting like a flight simulator system at home would be obviously it doesn't count i don't think it counts towards like your you know flying hours or whatever but as like training and stuff they're pretty accurate aren't they um well they can mm, be no yes and no i think i I I signed you up to the beta didn't i yeah you did i got that email um (laughs) i just i just entered jordan's email address like for the for the microsoft yeah i got that i was like that's definitely jules signing me up for that (laughs) so Flight simulators are fun, but one thing that instructors have mentioned is if you start on a flight sim, most people look at the instruments, which you're not allowed to do really for VFR. You can't be like, oh, I'm going to turn and I'm going to get 30 degrees of bank. So you're right. going to look mm-hmm. at one of the instruments to check that. You have to like know the f- what that looks like in terms of your plane. Um, otherwise, you'll fail your skills test by the look, by the sounds of it in VFR. Um, and... But then that's just a kind of flight simulator on your computer. I was actually watching a video uh, by a guy called on YouTube Flight Chops, who's like spent five about five grand, I think, on a proper simulator setup. And yeah. there are different types of simulators. So he's got like all like the flight gear, basically. Like it looks like his plane almost. And you can set that up. But I think the thing about flight sim is all about like what I would want to do is get one of the flight simulators where it's quite a realistic air traffic control system. Where you know you're on the ground, you request clearance to taxi, and you rec- you you know you go down that whole route because really it's for practicing like communication, and situational awareness, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, rather than the actual feeling, the feel of flying, because yeah, because you're always going to be disconnected from that when you when you, especially yeah. on this kind of simulator. But it's it's like immersing yourself in that world, though, isn't it? You're like it's, yeah, it's just like more like you say, watching YouTube videos. That's not teaching you how to do it but it's like 
it's like building these pathways in your brain about, oh, about yeah, all the sure. different stuff. It's just like reinforcing everything. Yeah. Like like when me and Georgia took our first proper lesson, respectively, we'd watch maybe three or four hours worth of like videos of different people like doing just end-to-end flights. Like we're literally sat watching breakfast, watching this dude just fly and flying IFR. And you listen to all the radio calls. And by the time we sat in the plane, we're like, the instructor's like, oh, I want you to do this, but we're already doing it. So for instance, like, it's really good practice and and to when you have because obviously you've got two people in the plane and when the when when you're doing doing your first few lessons your instructor might for instance taxi or take off or land the plane right so one of the things you would do is the instructor might go i have control and you would have to repeat back saying you have control and vice versa so if i am taking control of the aircraft he, he might go you have control i repeat i have control and vice versa and all that kind of stuff we would do by default because we watch these youtube videos and that's what's happening in the youtube videos but it's not because it's the cool thing to do it's because it's from a situational awareness point of view like i remember i think we were having a lesson and i it might be me or it might be georgia and um <laughs> one of the instructor went uh, you have control and one of us repeated i have control and he went no you, you don't have control because your hands aren't on the controls <laughs> and it's just like it's that whole situational awareness yeah where like what that means is if you have control it means your one hand is on the yoke at the very least and if you need to control power or rudders or whatever you have that so i'm 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 really enjoying youtube for that like it's fantastic so so after your ppl is it what what do you think the other milestones are um so in the short term yeah so i want to do ppl but then i so that's just vfr ppl right then i want to do an ifr like like in the UK, we have slightly different rules that coincide with like the European standards for flight. So an IFR rating is quite difficult by the sounds of it. Not difficult, it's just a quite heavy workload, which is something to work towards by all means. But you can do something called an IFRR, which is a restricted IFR, which basically is like a slightly different exam. I think it's slightly less workload initially, which is basically you can fly an IFR in the UK. Now remember, my PPL is valid across, when I get it, across all of Europe. But if I do a restricted IFR, it means I can fly instrument flight rules, so you know through cloud, only in the UK, oh, which right. which it's fine because it, it's like quicker route initially. So I might do that first, and then I'd like to maybe do because right now I'm pl- I'm flying on a single prop, basically piston engine, and there are different types of engines, so and different types of aircraft. So for instance, I can only fly fixed gear aircraft, so aircrafts that don't like have retractable landing gear oh. uh, and, and they're under something like two tons or so on that license. So I would like to see how I would go about flying, say a turboprop, say like a TBM 850, which are like single, single engine planes, but they're turboprops. So, you know, uh, a light aircraft, for instance, like the one I'm flying. So I fly a PA 28, which is a Piper. They can, they have like a serve, like, they're not pressurized aircraft, which means you would need oxygen, you know, separate oxygen to go over to say 12,000 feet, mm-hmm. which, and even tw- I say 12,000 feet is kind of limit. 10,000 feet is kind of where you start to probably worry a bit that you're probably going to run out of air. Um, so, you know, um, a, a turboprop, most turboprop planes will be kind of six to 10 seaters, you know, maybe more. They'll do 20, 25,000 feet service ceiling. Um, and they'll go three, four hundred mile an hour, but 
the way a turboprop plane works or engine works is very different from piston engine. Um, and I think the, you have to have different ratings for them. So I would, right. I, I'd like to do that moving forward. Um, but it's something that I'm just going to, I think, continue to do over the years. Yeah. Like a, so it sounds like you've got a lot of like options available to you mm. for where to take it, should you decide to do so. Yeah, for sure. And also, like, one thing, the reason I started doing this was for fun, but also I'm not sat at a computer. Like, my like if I, if I want to do a hobby, like, I don't know, cycling or something, I feel like it would just be way too easy for me to go, nope, I'm going to, I'm just going to sit at a computer or my hobby is coding because I don't code as much as now. But do you know what I mean? It's something where I'm, completely out of yeah to- like, totally yeah, totally yeah. different you've got you to you've got to go out somewhere you've got to be somewhere else and you, you have know. to book in the time and yeah. if you don't if you don't go you'll get billed for like unused time and stuff but also the workload is quite hard like when you're in the plane you're thinking about radios you're thinking about flying the plane if you're flying vfr you're thinking oh no is am i going to crash into a plane and all these kind of, <laughs> i mean you're not thinking that all the time but you've got to be like it's almost like when you start to learn to drive and you're like, how do I do the gears and I need to indicate and all this stuff. Yeah. I was going to ask this question. Obviously, like learning to drive seems like a fair bit of less work depending on, on the situation, but it's it's still learning to operate a vehicle. So how does that kind of compare in a way? Similar. So I was actually like the first time I taxied the airplane, which was like my second lesson. So the the instructors are pretty good. Like they're they're going to... They're going to make sure you get to do all the things you need to do, as, like within your limit. But they want you to be taxing the aircraft as soon as possible because that's how you yeah. learn, and um, yeah. they don't want to be doing it for you. Um, but I, you know, when you get out on the airfield, you have to do ten, fifteen minutes of checks, like making sure the aircraft is fit to fly. So you literally have to check all the wings, mm-hmm. all the lights. You check all the electronics, and you go through a set of checklists. And that, for the first time, I did that. I'm like thinking about my checklist, but then you also got to think about taxing the plane and doing checks you know and when you're doing it so i was quite overwhelmed the first time i was i was taxing the plane because i was like got to keep it on the center line which is quite difficult if you've not done it before because you're controlling this 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 big machine with your feet you've got your brakes are also on the same pedals so you you know you end up having mm-hmm. four controls across your two feet so at the top is your brakes at the bottom is your rudder so you have to be like and then you've also got the throttle to control the you know the speed of the aircraft if you want to give it some power mm-hmm. to to roll. So you're doing all that stuff, trying to keep it on the center line, and you've got a checklist that you know you've got to do at some point as well. Is there any kind of confusion and crossover when it comes to? I mean, I'm not obviously it's a different vehicle, but being sat in a seat with a windscreen in front of you, and then having pedals, do you think at all like? Because I'm I'm sat here kind of thinking like. Oh, if I had to stay with my feet in my car, that would be obviously really Weird, tough right? because you're not used to that at all. Like, I mean, even left foot braking is something that is really strange to do in a well, car. Yeah, for sure. Like, like the first time Georgia tried taxing the aircraft, like this happens to everyone. It, it kind of happened to me, but because I'd already experienced this in a lesson, um, I was like aware of it. So like, that's the beauty, like I said, the beauty of like experiencing someone else do it and then you going next because we, we land and then swap over. Mm-hmm was you steer with you you immediately go to try and steer the aircraft with the with the with the yoke with the effect of the steering right. wheel and nothing happens which is odd and also you've got two sets of brakes one left and one right not one set of brakes so yeah. you <laughs> because you use the brakes for for sharp turns as well right of course yeah 
one thing I've noticed is that George is way better in breaking than me, but I think that's because she tried. She's way better at breaking because when I when I started breaking initially, because you do practice, okay, can you bring the plane to a, s- a steady stop, please? I end up drifting off towards the left, and that's because I don't change gear in my car anymore because yeah. I've got an automatic. Yeah. So my my left leg is like useless or was. <laughs> so I'm like, oh oh no, I'm like in a ditch. Wait, obviously I'm over exaggerating. Yeah, a little bit. But, I could be in a know. ditch. <laughs> yep, and. So there are some similarities with like when you start to learn to drive because I think I was the same with the first time like you're driving the car and you have to change gears and then you have to check your mirrors and you and you brake and you're indicating and you're like oh my god how do I do all this stuff at once and and eventually and, it becomes kind of second nature yeah it becomes like this oh well checking the mirrors is not a massive deal you you look in your mirrors is there anyone there no and it just becomes you know you, yeah exactly and I think the second time I taxied it was way better because. I wasn't worried about power or controlling the brakes or anything like that in the same way because I was like, oh, all these things. But then you realize that nothing bad is going to happen if you're not pressing all the buttons at the same time. <laughs> like, you know, which is kind of like you need to do everything at once. So definitely some similarities in that. And I think it's going to get easier, but I think you have to keep it up, right? And that's the thing. Like, So we're flying every two weeks uh, or we're alternating, basically. So I'll sit in the back one weekend and George will sit in the back of the other it's super cool though like the because you know it don't get me wrong like eventually i'll probably like you know four seat a plane rent one for a weekend kind of thing and go and go to to france or wherever like you know that's easily doable but you, like i said you're only paying for the engine on time really not really paying for which is i didn't realize so you, you're not paying like every hour like a, the plane per hour as it were mm-hmm. um which is fine it will be more expensive than, than like saying going budget on a budget airline, obviously. But it's not hugely, it's not just like loads more expensive. But also, you get the freedom of using your license time yeah. as well. To, 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 That's the yeah, point, isn't it? Like, it's yeah, not. It's, it's like, not about the destination in that instance, is it? It's about the actual journey. Yeah, and and you know, I think. I'm I'm like I'm really looking forward to it. Like it's opened up my eyes to like things like I'm looking forward to things like the navigation and all the like like I've just talked about like all the technical stuff and like flying and the physics behind it, but there's there's navigation and emergency procedures that you need to to learn. But the navigation mm-hmm. stuff, once one thing I keep realizing is I get up in the in the air and your instructor's saying, Oh, that's you know, ferry bridge or that's you know, Drax Power Station or we're flying over the Humber Bridge or whatever. But you actually have no idea where you are. That kind of dawned right. on me. He was like, "Can you take us back to the airfield, please?" I was like, "And you're like, uh... I was like, I was like, <laughs> like, I can you tell where, where the like honestly?" And you know, one of the the skills tests is going to be about navigation, and this is flying without a sat nav or without a GPS. You're not allowed to use any of that kind of stuff. You have to fly by map and compass. So you need to know where things are. You need to before you get up in the air, you need to know what flight route you're going to take. And how you're gonna if you get lost, what you're gonna look for, what what objects, what landmarks, and how you're gonna know. Yeah, which is why is which is why your instructor's pointing those things out, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, because yeah. if you because things like uh, tracks and and you know large bridges and other bits and pieces are are things that you will see when you're up there from quite a distance. So obviously, like commercial companies tend to have like flight routes and stuff for certain destinations. Yeah. Do you, is, is that something that you as, as someone who's flying, say you're, you know, you're going to a certain place in France in the future. 
do you set that you can set your own path or is there like a standard for that and like a, a process you take to to plan a route or common route? Uh, uh, yeah so that's a really good question um and i'm not an expert on this yet um but essentially there are different because you f- you can fly vfr and you can fly ifr there are different types of 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 route planning i guess um you have to you have to consider a few things so if you're flying something like ifr you'll fly you'll file a flight plan before say you want to go for i want to go from leeds to nice mm-hmm. or ifr i would have to I would have to go and have a look at all the airspaces I'm going to travel through anyway. Because remember, you you know, I ended up traveling through Leeds and right. Doncaster, Sheffield, and then through, like, depending on what route I take, say, near London Heathrow or whatever, there's different airspaces mm-hmm. and they're all controlled by different towers. So I would go, oh, I'm going to fly, I'm going to, I want to fly this, this route. And generally speaking, you're optimizing your route for a few things. Uh, fuel, because you want the shortest possible route, because you'll get there sooner and burn less fuel, so it costs less money. We also want to make sure you are you have like alternate air airfields that you can divert to within a certain right. Say you have a something catastrophic, or in our case, in the case of uh, kind of a light aircraft, like you could like I could land up the plane in a field as long as it's a suitable field. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's stuff like that that you have to take into consideration. Um, but for commercial airlines, and when you're flying IFR, there are routes. Yeah, like they they have like. They like have specific kind of highways, uh, as it were, like air routes that yeah. a lot of planes will fly, um, and that won't necessarily because they've chosen to fly it exactly. That it's because the IFR route uh, they may file is the one that they know that is the best one, or that the the air traffic controllers will end up moving you through anyway. Because if you're flying through busy airspace, you are at the whim of the air traffic controller. Uh, I say whim. It's not the whim. You're at this. this they're, they're keeping you safe because if you've got, you know, say flying past a, a very busy airport, you the air, the air traffic controller may divert you completely off route off the route that you intended to fly because of how busy the airspace is going. So you will file the route and and um, and you might get diverted ever so slightly off your course, but. So you've got to take that into consideration with fuel calculations and all sorts of stuff because you need to calculate how much fuel you're going to need. You're not going to, it's not like a car where you, you're going to fill it all the way up to... I mean, mm-hmm. you, you would do this, but for big planes, like you're not going to fill up... If you've got to go from Leeds to, Brad, uh, Leeds to London, you're not going to fill up the whole plane with fuel if you, you know it's... Because you're going to burn more because of the weight and stuff yeah, like I've that. Yeah, I've heard like stories of uh, planes having to do things like pl- uh, fuel dumps, right? Yeah, to, to when they're taken off because... and had an emergency. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because they're just... And that's because they're, not, they're too heavy to land, basically. Right. Essentially, the, you have to calculate things like how much how much runway do I need to land at different weights, for instance, because the heavier the plane, the longer it's going to take to slow down. Right, yeah. Um, and all that kind of stuff, so... All this navigation and 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 performance and of the plane and, and and remember it changes depending on the plane you're flying. So if I got into a an AT three, which is a different type of plane, it's a two seater. It will have different characteristics. So you know what what speeds I'm allowed to deploy the flaps, for instance, and how fast I can go. At, at all sorts of stuff, and it's fantastic. And that's actually the bit that I find. I'm starting to find the most fun because mm-hmm. it's not just about flying the plane and going. Oh, I'm going to take off and. Now I'm going to land it. The, there's there's so much more to it that you have to be more proficient in than actually just flying the plane. Yeah. 
which is which I find really cool. Like um, uh, I'm really enjoying it. I actually get I get quite nervous if I'm being honest. It's yeah, really it, it, it does. Know. So so from my perspective, like it's obviously. I mean, typically it's said that, you know, flying commercially is, is more safe than driving, right? But, yeah. I mean, just talking to you, like, obviously there's people are generally scared of flying more than they are driving, but just talking, like, there's there's so much stuff that is obviously, I mean, as someone who only drives, is there's, there's a lot of stuff to take care of. Like, in the same way that, like, when I started driving, it was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to be driving soon, but still, like I've you know I've got to do all these things. And when you get in a car, it's like there's there's a lot to to learn and a lot to take care of. And you think, you know, I mean, we've all been learn. You know, whoever's learned to drive has been in a situation where like you know the, the instructor will be like, oh, pull over or whatever, like you know, or, or take control because of something, you know. And it's just it's all these things you you know that become second nature. But right now, must be really really overwhelming. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I think that's that's the thing about having like an instructor uh, by the side of your co-pilot is it reduces the workload anyway mm-hmm. like the work even when i pass my test the workload for for a pilot single pilot flight is way more than a co-pilot because what you would do is you might yeah. say right i'm gonna fly the plane you do the radios right because you have to you have to think about things like the air pressure um because that tells you what altitude you're at which is all stuff that i didn't really think about you know i was so if you're traveling through different airspace uh, airspaces and you're flying on QFEs, you you will continually update your altimeter to the the correct air pressure of the airspace potentially you're flying at, depending on if you're flying standard altitude or not. Which is a mm-hmm. weird thing, but that the idea is that the the way an al- altimeter works is it's done on air pressure. Um. So when I so one of the checks you do when you're taking off and and you continually do all the way through the flight is um keep an eye on uh, all sorts of stuff like the radios but when you're taking off you ask the airfield you say you know hi i'm this plane uh, i need air, i need the airfield information and a, and a radio check please and they'll come back and say this is the runway that's in use and you know the air pressure is basically this 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 number you know one zero one one eight or whatever and you have to write that down, and you also have to repeat that back to the air traffic controller to make sure you've they know you've understood it. So you'll go, uh, they'll go, you know, hi plane, the runway that's in use is nine left, and the QFE is this, and you'll go, you know, runway in use nine, and this is, you know, and they'll go, yeah, read back correct, um, and that's habitual stuff, and it's mm-hmm. safety, it's a safety thing yeah. because the air pressure will change, but for every one milli millibar i think it is that's 30 feet of difference in your altimeter so if you're out if you're out by even one millibar that's 30 feet so if you're doing ifr flight right that could be that could be a crash yeah so you're seeing you're the wrong information you're like i think the ground is at like zero feet towards my altimeter when i'm out by 30 feet then you know it might not be that bad yeah but if it's say you're out by a couple of hundred feet well then you've also got to think about you're flying in 3D space. Like, like I know that sounds a bit cliche, but the idea is everyone's synchronized to the same pressure Yeah. for the airfield, so you know where ground level is. But when you get above a certain altitude, you end up switching to what are called flight levels, which basically is just a standard QA. Everyone puts the same number in their altimeter over a certain altitude. And that basically means that every plane is knows where it is altitude wise in relation to each other not necessarily mm-hmm. the ground right oh interesting 
because obviously the air pressure changes so drastically across, well, through as you're flying, you know, on mm. the ground, that you don't really care where the ground is because you're 18,000 yeah, feet above the air. And you would recalculate it when you get towards the ground. Exactly. Right? What happens is you come into land, you start your descent, you go and ask air traffic control and you say, yeah, can you, well, you know, can you give me the QFE of the ground, please, or or whatever? Um, and then everyone switches back as they're coming in under, say, 3,000 feet, I think, legally. Yeah. I think there's some legal element. I need to check my book. But I never knew all this. And I think it's cool. So when you're flying, you actually, the plane doesn't really care where, it, where what, what level the ground is. Because obviously a mountain, you know, you're flying over mountains and ground level changes consistent, you know, cons- consistently yeah. and considerably through the flight. But what you really care the most about is where the planes are in terms of altitude. So if another plane is flying 18,000 feet in your direction, that then you know that they're, you're pretty much at the same flight level. Whereas if if they were flying at 18,000 feet above ground level. Yes. And you and were they're, flying. And they're a little way away. And you don't know. You don't know where that is. You yeah, don't know if that's. Fine. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting stuff. And the physics is crazy. Because I, I was like, how how do you know your altitude? Is there a laser on the plane that's like pointing mm. a laser? I don't know. Like, um, so that's really interesting stuff. Um, but obviously that workload is significantly reduced by having a co-pilot. Like, say I say, doing the radios or checking your fuel because you have to continuously like do you know the whole safety thing you were talking about andrew is what you what you have to do is memorize things like you're literally doing checklists it's the same mm-hmm. process over and over again depending on what the scenario is so it's right takeoff checks are this 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 and this and you know you're read you're literally reading from a full checklist and you you have to check everything yeah off. well i have some flight-based field notes if you want some <laughs> Oh, well, interesting enough, I actually, so uh, I haven't got a need board yet because I haven't needed one, but we, there were some apps, there's a Forefly and Skydemon, which are kind of like apps that basically you put on your iPad mm-hmm. and they have all the maps in and they have all the like things like glide path information for all the airports. Um, you can hook it up to like a Bluetooth beacon, which you buy for a couple hundred quid and it will track your flight via ADS-B, which is like the aircraft beacon system, which will tell you where other aircrafts are, and also it's got GPS in it. So you can actually track your whole flight and then replay it when you're back on the ground through your iPad to say, this is the airspace you went through, and <laughs> these are the altitudes that you went through, and this is what you did at this time, which is really cool. But you have to do quite a lot of writing things down when you're in the aircraft. Like when yeah. you, every, t- every time you're talking to air traffic control, if you're flying IFR, you are consistently writing things down. What pen are you using? Um, I'm not. I'm using a pencil. I'm using my lead holder. Ah, very nice. Um, because... Very nice. I also like I actually wanted to use my power tank because it's pressurized. It is, mm. yeah. And that way if I'm going through different altitudes, it's not like cuz it's an unpressurized plane and obviously I'm going up, you know, I'm not going upside down in the plane, but you know, my bag gets thrown around a bit. It shouldn't be a problem, but it's it ran out. So that's uh oh. 6 or 7 years I've had that pen maybe and yeah. it's finally run out. Um so I thought, you know, I'm just going to use a pencil and I have a Shenandoah field notes. Um, right, that is in my bag that I'm using, uh, but I I'm not really at the stage where I'm writing too much down yet because my instructor will do most of that because you know my job right now is to learn about the physics of the aircraft, mm-hmm. and how to fly straight and level, and you know understand how to land the plane and take off because those are the things you need to know to be able to f- solo fly f- like flick fine radio. You need to know about radios, but if you're flying in your own aerodrome, then practicing your radios is great, but you need to know how to fly, fly and land the plane on your own yeah. first before you you go down that that route. So, um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm using my lead holder. I'm going to use a Shenandoah. I'm probably going to get a kneeboard anyway, and then I'm probably going to switch to something like, well, I say switch. I will always have a, I think I'm always going to have a field notes and a kneeboard, regardless whether I use my iPad or not, because I think if the iPad died or, you know, yeah. there's a technical fault, you always have to have a fallback. So when are you next flying? I am flying, I'll tell you. So what's really cool is, anecdotally, anecdotally, is that I think 90% of the aviation that you will see will be general aviation, not necessarily commercial aviation. So it's a massive thing. So there is a, every, most aerodromes um, have like a booking system and it's like this one company that have got like the, they kind of like got the monopoly on it where you, it's called Flight Schedule Pro. Right. And so I have an app on my phone that I've used to book instructors and planes out. If it would load, that would be fantastic. Hold on. Oh my God, why is technology failing me? Which is exactly why you'd have a field notes as well. Exactly. So. <laughs> it's like I'd have a paper calendar at this rate and everything. Um, I think I'm flying on the... You have to say the date, just, you know, today, next week, the week after. I think I'm flying on the 7th or the 14th, so the Sunday, uh, for a couple hours. So not and today? Not... No, not today. No, I flew last weekend. Um, and something that is interesting <laughs> is you do... So when you're sat in the back, it's fine. But when you're doing effects of control, which is one of the lessons where you, you basically put the plane into a dive in your first few lessons and you have to like understand like how you end up in these positions. Like, mm -hmm. it, and I was sat in the back and Georgia was doing everything. And some of these planes, the back intercom don't, it doesn't work. So I'm basically sat with headphones on. I can't hear what they're saying and I can't even hear myself because it's really loud. And it was effects of control. I was in a plane, couldn't hear a thing. And for the whole hour, basically, I'm being thrown around in the back, dive, dive after <laughs> dive. It's like, so I've never, I, ne I never usually feel sick, but by the end of it, I actually was holding a sick bag, just thinking to myself, when will this end? Um, because it was like, that's the thing. I think the part of flying is understanding the limitations and and, and the worst parts of, of a problem. So we're literally like, Put the it's called a spiral descent. In the first lesson, George put the plane in a spiral descent, and you you're going from two thousand six hundred feet to like a thousand feet very quickly. So is that is that spiral as in you're turning and you're falling? So the idea is that you you want to understand like the effect of the rudder, which is like the the vertical um the you know the fin at the back the the thing that goes up right. basically yeah. the, 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 and that's used to kind of steer the plane to an extent like I say steer the plane it's used to um, it affects um, your basically so the because it's three there's three different you know, dimensions to it mm -hmm. pitch roll and your and the idea is that okay you're going to use the the rudder to kind of turn the plane a little bit okay great but let's just see what the actual rudder does when you when you put your foot down on it basically and you end up turning left and you don't do anything else. And what happens is you turn left, but you descend because there's like secondary effects of different things. So if you, if you turn then you'll lose a bit of altitude because you, you're generating less lift. So you have to counteract those things when you're flying. So we hit the left rudder and we just kept it there and you end up basically turning and turning and turning, but you go down. So you end up in a spiral descent basically. Right, right. Which is fine. But what happens is 
what I found what I found quite difficult in the sense of keeping my stomach and my food down was that you would keep doing that and you would go from left to right and then you would use your ailerons, which is like the, the flaps on the wing to turn, to, to try and perform the same thing and see what happens. Um, and by the end of it, I was like, please, can we land? Please, can we land? Please, I'm going to throw up. Oh my God, I'm going to throw up. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, it's like, like I mean, in driving, like it, as the driver, you're less, because you know what you're doing, like you know you're about to turn or turn a corner or whatever. You tend to be really stable whereas a passenger like someone turns a corner or changes lane or something and you can end up kind of moving side to side and it feels like i so i guess as the pilot even though you are in a descent i guess you could be a bit more steady than yeah than the yeah. passenger in the back yeah for sure and and the thing about driving is you you only have to deal with like speed and turning mm. you have to deal with altitude as it were true um, so you, you're kind of dealing with other things it's like i'm turning but oh cr- oh, oh crap I'm, I'm going down oh no there's the ground do you know what i mean like right you you don't think about these things so no i'm i'm really enjoying it you're coming up with me at some point well both of us well yeah i mean i mean not not at the same time but um alternate days maybe yeah, and I'll be up yeah, yeah. Um, well i mean i've actually really enjoyed this conversation not that I didn't expect to, but it's been there's, a, there's a, like a lot to there's a, you know it's been really good. Well, I'll keep you guys updated on different for things because sure, sure. there's so much to it that I I think there are like nine books and I've got two of them and I have to go through all of them. I think so. There'll be so much cool stuff to talk about. Mm, for sure. Well, uh, we'll see. We'll see how many hours you have to get before I go up in the plane with you. I think I actually <laughs> have to get my PPL before I can take you up on my own, otherwise my instructor has to come with you. Maybe maybe the instructor being there would be uh, helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm I'm definitely more cautious of this stuff. I don't know, maybe it's because I personally know you. Not that you're like a, you know, uh, an untrustworthy person or anything. But, uh, yeah, uh, okay. I think there's a, there's definitely a, a level there that's it's different to being flown by someone who says like, yeah, I fly people all the time, I guess. I don't know. Thank you for listening to episode 38 of the Mavis Podcast. You can find the show notes for today's episode in your podcast player of choice, but also mavispodcast.com slash 38. You can tweet us your questions for the show at Mavis Podcast. And finally, you can find me on Twitter at Andrew Hathaway, Julian on Twitter at Julian K, and Jordan is at Jordan is on fire.